Today on the show, I'm joined by Bart Campolo. Bart used to be a Christian. He's very well known and uh, he was a, a humanist um, mentor and coach um, or chaplain for a little while uh, at a university and has subsequently began to uh, release a podcast and talk to individuals and coach and mentor them. Um, he's a really fascinating character, somebody who's left uh, a very evangelistic, very charismatic uh, Christianity and has found himself with a lack of belief and understanding the world through a more humanistic lens. Uh, this conversation is great. It gives us a good overview of Bart's story, but it also helps us dive into some really personal nuances that um, yeah, I was really uh, excited and, and uh, impressed that Bart would be so vulnerable and so open uh, with me on my show. Um, you can check out links for Bart in the description, so make sure you do that. And for everybody who's new to When Belief Dies, welcome. Um, if you hit subscribe and then the notification bell, you'll be reminded whenever When Belief Dies releases a video. And if you hit the thumbs up button, that helps to boost this video, helps other people find the show and helps us grow slowly bit by bit. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bart Campolo. Cheers. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam, and today I'm joined by the one and only Bart Campolo. Bart, it's great to have you on the show. Hey, well, thank you. It's good to be here. So, Bart, I know we reached out a little, well, I reached out to you um, probably about five, six months ago now to get you on, but unfortunately, I got a bit unwell and wasn't able to have you on. But um, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to actually be able to finally have this conversation. It feels like it's been quite a long time coming. Um, yeah, how, so, yeah. Are you, how are you doing health-wise? Yeah, better, better. I was, um, I, I just took too much on. So I was, um, I was basically doing a full-time job. I've got two young kids, um, you know, wife, a bit of my family, basically. Uh, I, was, and I took on a doing, um, doing a master's from the university and, uh, it was just the sort of straw that broke the camel's back. But that is, I finally finished the master's that's complete. And I feel like I have a bit of my life back now, which is nice. Um, what, what, yeah. what are you a master of? Uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't feel like I am, but technically, I, I have a, a master, uh, a master's in senior leadership. So I'm, I'm, I'm an old leader. That's all it sounds like, right? Um. <laughs> what What does one do with a master's in senior leadership? Yeah, it's it's really around business. So. Um, basically looking at the various facets and elements of um, business. So looking at you know, the finances, strategy, um, management, corporation, um, communication, all those different sorts of elements and kind of wrapping it all together. So uh, for my dissertation, this is such a tangent, but it's fine. Um, for, for my dissertation, um, I basically explored um, contractual ambiguity and the impact that that has on organizational performance so if an organization is selling a product but they have a contract which they don't really understand it means that the customers are agreeing to things that the company can't necessarily deliver so there's a massive kind of like gap in 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 the market basically for, for that understanding to take place so just trying to map out if a company doesn't understand what they're agreeing to contractually to the customer what sort of impact does that have over a 5 10 15 year period um yeah it's very very geeky but i i did enjoy it sounds fascinating <laughs> no i mean in, in in a way it does like but but i guess i mean in a way it actually does sound sound fascinating but um at, you know because like you get down those crevices and you're like wow this it actually matters yeah, like, yeah how does. ambiguous a contract is um, yeah. So, so are you are you pining to be a senior manager? Like, are you going to run a company or something? Is that the deal? 
Oh, I don't know. I don't know. One day, maybe. So I, I basically, um, I oversee the sort of service delivery for an organization in London at the moment. So one day uh, I might shoot for that, but currently uh, that is enough pressure on my shoulders. So um, I'm, I'm very, very happy yeah. I am. <laughs> I mean, did what you learn in your master's program, do you think it like will help you do the job that you're doing now more comfortably or, or better? Like, d- does yeah. it ha- is it practical even at the level of management you're at? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there are so many sort of areas where um, I learnt little tricks. So, for instance, uh, again, massive tangent, but really interesting. So, um, scenario planning. So, um, this would be kind of uh, something that, say, um, Shell or BP, which are two very big sort of um, uh, oil and gas companies here in the UK, um, they would use scenario planning to say, well, in the next 10 years' time, based on the current forecasts, what's it going to look like we're going to be? And they'd map out like maybe like a really positive uh, scenario, really negative scenario, a more than likely scenario. And they basically work out ways that they could track over the next sort of like one month to one year to five years to 10 years to work out which trajectory are we on and what do we need to put in place to make our reserves more efficient or increase our profits or those sorts of things. So yeah, create like sort of creating scenarios and then basically testing yourself against them um, iteratively to see where you actually land. Uh, like that's fascinating. I knew nothing about that before I started, but actually that's a really useful tool for like everybody in their life. Yeah, I mean, that's it's actually hilarious because I just got done reading an email from one of the people that's trying to help me with my podcast. Okay. Um, I have these two producers and this third woman came in and said, like, I think I could help you. And she's a strategic planner. She's a consultant to big, you know, and so she <laughs> she did a horrible thing. She went back into the archives and listened to me talking about myself at different okay. places and then like quoted me back at myself saying, you say this, but you also say this and you do this. And, and what she, but, but ultimately what she was doing was she wanted to sort of figure out like, do I want to be a, she was quoting me talking about a book called Good to Great, which was a very popular business yeah. management book that I read. It's like the only business book I ever read. And she was like, and, and so she she basically said that book was actually really controversial. His research was shoddy and this and that. And then she said, but it raises a good question. Do you want to be good or do you want to be great? And interestingly enough, what she said was, she said, I'm not talking about like you're going to think that great is better than good, but that's not what I mean. She said like, do you want to have – it's sort of like an investing portfolio. Do you want to take a big risk? to try to get a huge reward and like be a big player or do you want to take very little risk and guarantee that you're going to have like a moderate impact and she's like you know it depends on your temperament but she's like you're back and forth like you sometimes talk like somebody who's trying to be who's who wants to be make a real big impact and other times you talk like a guy who just wants to like run a mom and pop store and uh and so she was really using all this. I mean, she had graphs and curves and all the stuff in there. And it was just, but, but what was funny was all her illustrations were, was stuff I had said. Wow. So it was, it was really, really interesting. And like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually scheduled to talk with her because she wants to talk with me about like, what are you trying to do here? Um, and she's just like a fan of the show. She's just like a person with expertise who was like, 
I think you say really like I think your stuff about relationships and 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 community building and you know interpersonal communication is like really good. I'd like to help you. I just don't know like what are you trying to do? Fascinating. And I realized that I I don't have any idea. Okay. And it must have been quite scary though, right? If somebody goes back and actually starts scouring everything you've said and then presents it back to you. Like that's that's humbling and scary. Yeah. And I mean, in this case, at least she was only going back the last 10 years. You know, what I have happened to me as a guy who was a fairly prominent evangelical Christian for 30 years is I also have people going back and going like, you said this, <laughs> now you say that. And that's really, it's that, that can be really both scary, weird, like, you, you know, it's, it's, it's like you're talking to another person but it's you some of the stuff is exactly the same as you are now some of the stuff is diametrically opposed um and so yeah my relationship with my past self is strange yeah man i can't which i I mean you know given that your podcast is called when belief dies probably a lot of the people that are listening to you have weird relationships with their past selves yeah yeah absolutely yeah i just have a lot of foot i just have a lot of a lot of recorded footage (laughs) evidence you have the evidence yeah oh wow yeah i mean i mean this this was gonna be one of the things i was gonna like chat to you later about but we're on the subject we might as well just hammer it off now i think one one of the one of the things so i i have listeners to my show who are uh, christians who might be coming out of christianity i've got agnostics going into different belief systems i've got eight, hard atheists all sorts listen to the show um and they've all they're, they're all on a journey right they all want to explore this space and begin to try um, and understand and articulate belief systems and structures of certainty and and try and make sense of the world that they have come from and where they're going to um but obviously you've 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 gone through the mill you obviously have all this sort of past data as well where you can go back and actually you know what did i write in my journal what did i say here what's i doing this preach what did i you know videos online those sorts of things like how do you how do you give yourself the sort of grace and ability to um to recognize that you've changed and and also admit that it's okay that you know at then you might have been wrong you might be wrong now in the sort of things you're saying compared to your future self and and actually mapping that out in a sort of loving way to yourself because it can be very easy or can't it to be quite critical and quite negative on oneself um, so how, how do you manage that you know i i don't know i don't know if i when if it's just me it's not a problem it's it's when the things that you say and do impact other people's lives it's when people make decisions based on things that you say and do and and to some degree the more personal charisma you've got the more dangerous it is um and you know i i i hang around with i am the son of somebody with you know, off the charts, personal charisma. Um, So relative to a lot of the people I hang around with, my personal charisma quotient is fairly low, but relative to the general population, uh, you know, I've convinced a lot of people to do a lot of things. Um, And so I think that that's the thing is that it it feels like you have a, you have a very powerful weapon. Um, in your ability to 
persuade people to consider things or, or, or even adopt things in their minds. And, and so that's, that's where it, it messes with your head. Um, so, you know, I, like I'll have, I'll get a letter sometimes from somebody who will talk about the horrifying journey they had through Christian purity culture and how terrible they felt about themselves for looking at pornography or masturbating. And they'll say like, listen, you know, I heard you speak at this thing and you weren't like a hardcore fundamentalist, but like, you know, like you were talking about the struggle and I bought in and it messed me up and like I'm in therapy or it screwed up my marriage or, and you go like, that feels awful. I don't know. How, you know, and, 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 you know, you go like, well, I can, you know, I can stack that up against 40 lives that I turned in a positive direction. And you're like, and you're like, yeah, that doesn't really help that guy very much. You know, they're not, they're not, they're not, you know, plus minus things on a, on a spreadsheet. These are, these are people, these are lives. And so, you know, and and I mean, I think on some level we all have that experience where, you know, the kid we bullied in junior high, that could have been really important or the girl that we did or didn't say something kind to on, on a bad day. Like, you know, we've all had our lives impacted really powerfully by people um, who weren't charismatic, but they just were in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time. And so, you know, I think, I think whenever you stop to sort of think about like, what's my impact on the world, you, you could, you could go crazy. And so I think that what I've come to lit, come down with Sam is I, I've, I've kind of boiled it down to asking the question in that moment, was I being sincere in that moment? Was I saying what I really thought in, in that moment? Was I doing the best I could? And even when I look back at my Christian sermons, there are, there are these themes that run through the things I was saying that were about the importance of loving people and that meaning was made by building relationships and, and lots of stuff that's still a through line in everything I do now. And so I don't feel awful about all of it. Um, there are places where I go like, ooh, you know, ooh. But then I think to myself, wait a second. Were you selling something because it would help you? Or were you buying the very thing you were selling? Like, were you, like the question is, when I was making that person feel messed up about, you know, masturbating, was I laying awake the next night feeling horrible about masturbating? The answer is yes. You know, so there's a level at which I was since, you know, at, at the very least, I can say I was doing the best I could. So it's so hard. I think so. I, 
I kind of often view it through this lens. I don't know, I don't know if this is very helpful or not, but um, whenever you meet somebody in the world, you might get on really well with them. They might be like the best person ever, but you're going to meet people that you struggle with or that hurt you or harm you in some sort of way. It could be they're cutting you up in traffic or they jump ahead in a line or or something more serious. Um, someone upsets you or says something negative about you at work or you get fired for a stupid reason or whatever it is. And all these people that are doing things, at some point they were a little child with a hope and a dream trying to become something and throughout the course of this life they've been pushed into becoming the person that is in front of you now that you might be getting on really really well with or having a really really hard time with but if you look back at their past that little child you, you wouldn't ever place all the blame and all the anger and all the hatreds on the potential of that life and that life has just grown into where it is today but it's it's easy when you begin to see other people through that lens to recognize that you can give them that bit of extra grace you can give them that love you can give them that comfort but the hard part is turning it around to yourself and recognizing that you are also just that little child trying to live in this world and being shaped and pushed through the directions that life gives us yeah, yeah. he who kn he who knows all forgives all mm. you know that i remember that proverb as a christian you know thinking it was referring to god but then you just realize like if any of us knew the story the whole story of the person sitting across from us, we would have all the grace in the world for them. Yeah. And, and you're right. It applies to, it applies to you too, is that even, even when a person doesn't do their best, they're still doing their best because the part of them that gives up on doing their best is conditioned by something else in their past. Like there's, there's a reason why people don't try hard and it's as deterministic as the reason why some people do try hard. And so you just go like, you know, I mean, on some level, it's, this is all the, it's like the, I, I, I feel like you're the Oracle in the matrix, you know, in, in the first matrix movie, which is the only one anyone should ever watch by the way. Amen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, th that's something I will stand by. Um, you know, when she's standing in that kitchen and the idea is like, if you knew what was going to happen, would you have done it differently? And, and, and you just go like, yeah, we don't know. We don't, we don't have that knowledge. Um, but there's a sense in which everything is determinist. Like on some level we live in it. You know, if you really break it down to old Sam Harris and the free will stuff. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm reading a physicist on the same subject and, just go like, yeah, everything happens for a reason, but not the way those soapy t-shirts mean it. It just means like you live in a deterministic universe. There's, there, you know, everything has a cause, including me preaching really shitty things when I was 25 years old. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you can, so, so, so even using the example of pornography, which you mentioned before, um, obviously you know, some people out there are are probably really struggling with the other element of being overly addicted to pornography. Like they're they're lost and they're actually trying to find a way to to not be as engaged with it as they are. It's taking the, you know they can't sleep at night. They're looking at it all the time. It's it's become an actual ad, ad, addicted habitual thing. And actually, it's it's it, it yeah, kind of like I, kind of like exercise or yeah. you know playing the piano. Like anything, yeah, yeah. can become a problem. Yeah. Um, even something that is now, now you go like, but there are some things like torturing like puppies. You're like, yeah, that's a, that's in and of itself a problem. Like it's you know like that is intrinsically not a good thing. 
but but pornography is one of those things that under some circumstances can be incredibly helpful to people and in other other circumstances can be incredibly harmful that that there are ways in which pornography can pr- be produced that are ethical there are other ways that pornography can be produced that are you know really unethical and and and, and exploitative and so it's you know but when when believe me when i was in that pulpit preaching against pornography it, it had nothing to do with th- those things it was a blanket thing that had to do with purity and not letting down the God of the universe. It's fascinating, and, isn't it? And it was, and it was all about personal purity. It, it, it wasn't anything about like, gosh, this is exploitative to women, or even about relationships. Like this, this could really harm your your marriage moving forward. It was purely about like, this is wrong, because ipso facto, the Bible says it's wrong, or at least my interpretation of the Bible says it's wrong. And so, like, but again, like. Was I living under that same sword? I was, you know? And so, I mean, that's just, I mean, yeah, I don't want to get off in the weeds of pornography. I'm just saying that, yeah, um, they're, they're, and as a humanist, it's the same thing. Like, you know, I'm a therapist these days. You know, do people come in who, you know, who are doing things that are not intrinsically wrong, but that are really harming them? Yeah. Yeah. And so you end up, you end up sort of like my, you know, my ethic of what makes something right and what makes something wrong is probably one of the biggest things that's changed for me since I adopted a more naturalistic, you know, sort of here and now way of looking at things. You know, I sort of like, yeah, you know, most of our ethical codes, they grew up out of the same kind of, you know, like, our codes come from the same place a bonobo's code comes from or an elephant's code comes from. Like whenever you have social animals living together and their survival depends upon them cooperating, they end up with a code that basically says like what's right is what's good for the group and what's wrong is what's bad for the group. And, and that's, like, that's the underlying reason behind these codes and so you end up sort of ask, you know, and, and, and even what's, what's good for me is, is, is good for me, partly because I'm a part of the group and I owe something to the rest of the group. So like my identity and all that stuff. So you go like, is pornography good or bad? And I'm going to go like, well, how's it affecting your relationships with the rest of the group? How's it, how's it affecting, how's it, is it strengthening you or is it weakening you in order to be the most loving and, and, and and connected person you can be because that's good for you that's good for the group what's good for you and what's good for the group have a lot to do with each other you know and so i you know right and wrong is is much more for me about like what works and for one person drinking alcohol is really wrong because it hurts and for another person drinking alcohol is medicine because it helps and so, you, you know, you have to have kind of like a broader view of, you, you have to know what it is that makes something right to you or wrong to you. And, um, you know, probably one of the biggest mistakes that I made as a young person was that I was really excited about having a book of rules so that I would know what to do. And like, it would answer all those questions for me. And in a sense, I was sort of, I guess like sort of outsourcing 
the moral project of trying to figure out like, how's this affecting somebody? You know, what's the impact of this? What, what makes something right or what makes something wrong? I didn't have, I never asked that question until I was like 45 years old. Cause I thought I had an answer. And all of my, all of my creative energy was spent in trying to figure out how to live up to the code. But almost none of it was asking the question of like, where does the code come from? Is it a good code? Like what makes a good, what makes a good code? You know? So, you know, and to, to, to quote from, you know, another great TV show, um, the, or, or another great piece of, of, of film, uh, the, the wire, um, the, 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 the cop show, you know, there's a great character in the name Omar who's kind of code, you know, man's got to have a code. And I really feel like, you know, most of us, especially those of us that come out of religion, we've got like a code shaped hole in our heart, you know, where we go like, I lost my code. I, I need a new code. And like that becomes part of what it means to be in, you know, in my case, like a humanist, like somebody who's like trying to figure out like, what is my code? Like, like what are my heuristics that I use to make decisions so that I don't have to think everyone through from the, from the ground up. And like, for me, it all starts out with the idea of I'm really committed to thriving as a human being to making the most of this life, which I feel like is a, is a really glorious gift. But then, you know, you go like, but, but do you have to codify how to make the most of a good life? And I go like, only if you want to not spend every minute of your life thinking about it. Like sometimes I just want to go like, yeah, you know, in general, uh, it's really good to share with your, your friends. And, you know, and in general, like you definitely want to build a handful of close relationships. Like there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, there are exceptions, you know, there are exceptions to that, to that, to that code. Um, and, and it may not be the right code for everyone, but like, you know, in some ways I had to work out a code because like I had lived by one all those years. And I was like, I, I kind of need a new grand narrative of like where we come from and what happens when we die. And then I need to work out a code that says, because that's true, we should love each other or we should do work that makes things better for other people or we should cultivate gratitude or whatever it is that's going to cause you to thrive. But like, yeah, so, so. You know, in, in some ways, that's the weirdest thing about listening to me, the things I said is it's not how crazy the stuff I used to say was. It's that it was made on the basis, on a basis of figuring out what's right and wrong that I, I just am I'm, I'm just shocked that I never questioned until so late in the game. I know am I ram? Am I rambling a little bit, bro? No, 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 no. Not at all, not at all. <laughs> I feel I'm like just, I'm rambling. I've just got a few. Uh, there's a few ways I could take it. I'm thinking of what would be the best way, and I think it'd be, you've, we've kind of mentioned a few times how there's been this shift in code and how um, you've been kind of preaching or talking about certain things, and you've now looked back at that, and, and, and lots changed to get you to where you are now. Um, and I think a lot of my listeners would probably really appreciate just hearing. Um, some of the things that made you stop and look at the code and go, oh, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make, this isn't quite right. This doesn't quite um, graph to the, to the world around me. So what, what for you, Bart, what were the things that began to, I guess, make the dominoes fall? Oh man. You know, sometimes people ask that, Sam, they're like, you know, when did, when did it start to go, yeah. go south for you? You know, I'm like, you know, I mean, I started losing my faith in, Orthodox Christianity about five minutes after I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. I mean, like, it was hard for me to believe all that supernatural stuff. 
Yeah. Like what I was excited about when I became a Christian as a teenager was being part of a loving community was, you know, this is the nicest people I'd ever met and having a purpose. Like we were actually like looking at people that were hurting and need, like needy and sort of thing. Like we could, how could we get them into our group and love them and make them feel a sense of belonging and help their life get better and get them off drugs. And, you know, like, I mean, we had a purpose and, and there was, and again, like there, and there was a code like, I, okay, these are the things we're supposed to do. I, you immediately had a sort of a sense of, of belonging to a, a, a fellowship. I mean, it was just, so for me, this, you know, I struggled with the biblical narrative from Jump Street. Um, but I think that what ultimately happened to me was, is that I, you know, one of the first things that happened to me as a Christian was I got, I got pulled into working with really poor people in really tough neighborhoods. And I spent 30 years kind of living and working in ghettos with, with people that were up against it. And in that context, you, you know, you end up praying for very basic things. You know, God, could you help that, that kid get out of that drug house? Can you help that little girl stop getting raped by her uncle? You know, could, you know, just could, could this family have enough money so that they could pay the rent and would not get evicted again? And, you know, what I found was over the years, that God answered those prayers about as often as those prayers would have been answered by random chance. That, 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 you know, in, in my neighborhood, God didn't intervene very much. And I, you know, so I gradually, over the course of many years, just like lost my ability to believe that there was a benevolent force behind any of it, that there was any, any kind of, like, like that, I mean, if there was a God who was as loving as I was saying he was, like, what the hell is he doing? And so, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, and of course, you're, you know, you're, you're a preacher, you're reading scriptures, you're seeing things that don't make sense with each other. Like, but like, I, you know, I was very practiced. I, you know, I, I, I had good workarounds for that stuff. I, I had, my theology kept shifting all along the way as I kind of did theological somersaults to make God work. I mean, the, the last God I believed in right at the end was like perfect. I that God agreed with me about everything and loved all the stuff I loved and like was just benevolent and kind and not responsible for a bad thing in the universe. The problem was, is like I had done so many gymnastics to create that God that in the end you're like, oh yeah, there's a reason why I like that God so much. I invented him. And, and that God doesn't have a lot of authority in your life. And so, you know, so yeah, you know, for me, it was, it was a combination of like just, eventually the same the same old doubts that trouble any old christian troubled me but then you know when you're when you're in the thick when you're when you're really around a lot of injustice and a lot of poverty and a lot of random violence yeah you just go like yeah i i, I just lost the ability to hold hold any of it together yeah it, it makes sense i think one of the one of the things that i find interesting is watching christianity shift from a conservative or fundamental viewpoint to a more kind of like open and, rela and relational theology. Like I've spoken to quite a few pastors who are uh, open and rela relational and they kind of say, you know, that, you know, God um, is powerful, but he's not all powerful. He's knowing, but he's not all knowing. He's all loving that like we can have that one, tick that box. Um, but he's not, you know, he, basically he isn't all the omnis. He's oh, yeah. just kind of partly 
partly God, but not really. And it's almost like you've got to kind of distill God down enough so that he's got enough water in him for, for him to exist and the world around them to make sense. Um, it's fascinating. I kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, you say Christianity is doing that. Like Christianity has always done that. Like there's always a brand of Christianity that's doing that. They're mm. like, cause Christians do that. Like really good hearted, loving people get into Christianity and they love it. And they, and they love the, and that's where they, they know all the songs and that's where their family is and they want to stay. And, and, and so they end up bending their theologies to make room for gay people, to make room for, you know, for, for, for God to, to save their Muslim friends. Like, like they, they work it all out theologically because they, they, they want it, they need it, they love it. And, and so you're always going to have Christians shifting away from, you know, hardcore conservative fundamentalist stuff to being like, you know, Brian McLaren and Richard Rohr and, you know, all those, all those super nice. And like, you know, and, and like, I could tell you the, the progressive Christians of a hundred years ago or the progressive Christians of 200 years ago, they're always there. Um, but Christianity itself, uh, they're just as those guys are always there. Those people are always there. You know, you could, you could, wipe out all Christian fundamentalism, all, all religious fundamentalism today. And like, there would be no trace of it and it would reinvent itself tomorrow. Um, there's something, there's something in human nature, um, that there's, that there's always going to be, there's always going to be a group of people uh, and maybe a large group of people that are going to believe in magic and that are going to want security so much out of that belief system that they're going to come up with a form of magic that says we're in and you're out. Cause the only way we can know that we're in is if we can differentiate ourselves from the people that are out. And so you're always going to have those kind of, I want some rules <laughs> and I want God to kill people who don't follow them. <laughs> oh, Cause it I, makes me feel secure. Yeah. It means that you're right. And everyone else is wrong. You can feel comfortable. And once again, like assurance, but back to your thing, like, he who knows all forgives all like if, if like those theologies grow out of very very human needs and fears like you know the the idea that a bunch of guys get together in a back room and come up with like conservative evangelical fundamentalism because they know they can make money off it like that's just that's just not how it happens and it, cause it happens in cultures all over the place over and over again. And yes, there are people that figure out like in very cynical ways, how to make money off of that human tendency. But, but believe me, that human tendency was there before money was even invented. It's about, it's about people trying to make sense of a life that is really scary and, and mysterious and often painful and, you know, so like you got to have some grace. You got to have some grace for the people that are trying to sell you grace. Will you support when belief dies? Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything that we do. There are three ways to support when belief dies. Firstly, would you rate when belief dies in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, would you share this episode with your family, friends, and followers? 
we grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards the running and improving of the podcast and YouTube channel. All links are in the description. And thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's conversation. Hmm. I love that. So, so humanism kind of folds into a lot of the things you're obviously saying. Um, it'd be really helpful if you could kind of just, I guess, break down how you view humanism and how you kind of outwork it. We, humanism for me, like I, I remember when I left Christianity and I was like trying to figure out, well, what am I now? And I spent like six months reading books and asking questions, like stumbled onto the writings of Robert Ingersoll and read them all, who's like the, the great, wonderful 18th, 19th century guy who was writing all the stuff that I loved. And, uh, and I didn't know what to call myself. I wasn't going to call myself an atheist because I felt like such a, you know, first of all, when you grow up in Christianity, like, Atheist means like mean person who wants to destroy us um, in that world. And so like it just, you know, sometimes a word kind of takes on a connotation. I didn't like the connotation, but also I didn't want to be defined by like what I don't believe in. I mean, felt like agnostic. And yeah, you know, technically I am agnostic. I can't prove anything. I can't prove, I can't prove that this isn't all a simulation and I'm not the only person in it, you know, or whatever. So like technically I'm agnostic, but it, but like, again, in the common parlance, that sort of means like, I'm not sure. I don't know what I believe. And I was like, yeah, I got a pretty good idea how I think things work. So it didn't feel right. You know, you go like, well, call yourself a free thinker. I was like, well, I, I know way too much about cognitive biases to call myself a free thinker. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a product of my upbringing and experiences, you know, like anyone else. And you go like, well, then skeptic. And I go like, that's, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to live, not why everybody else is wrong. And so, you know, you come across humanist and again, like you're like, I'm older than you. Like when I was growing up, secular humanism was like, that was communism. Like, they, you know, beware the secular humanists. They want to destroy everything. And so I like, I wasn't prone to humanism. But what I found was, is that the one thing I liked about it was the idea that it was, it was saying what I'm for, like I'm, I'm for the human experience, like all of it, birth, life, death. Like, I think it's all part of this experience and I'm really loyal to that experience and, and I'm loyal to this tribe. Like, you know, if, if it, if it comes down to a battle between us and the, and, and, and the puppies, like I love puppies. I think they're cute, but like, if it was, if it was down to it, I would choose the humans. Like I'm more loyal to the humans. Um, Gertrude Stein, be darned. Um, you know, she, who she said, the more I know people, the more I love my dog. Um, but, it, but, it, but so part of it is just like, a, like it says what I'm about. I'm about, I'm, I'm, I, I care about these people. But the other thing is, is that it was a word sort of that didn't have a lot of content to it. Like if you ask anybody, what's a humanist? They don't know. And so like when, when I was the humanist chaplain at USC in, in, L, in Los Angeles, I mean, the way, the way we would table for our group was we would put out a sign that says, are you a humanist? Question mark. People come by and go like, I don't know. What is a humanist? 
And we would always say like, well, it means a lot of different, it's just like Christianity or, or anything else. It means a lot of different things to a lot of people. But to us, to me, what it means is, it means somebody, the secular part of it means, I, I don't think there's anything supernatural going on here. I, th- I think I'm a materialist on some level. Like, I think this is it. I think this is, I think I didn't exist for 13 billion years and then now I'm here and I'm going to die and then I won't exist for 13 billion more years. This is like my brief vacation from non-existence. Um, and I believe that it's extraordinary. That's an extraordinarily rare thing to be a, con- you know, of all the matter and energy in the universe, a, a vanishingly small percentage of it gets to be conscious, gets to be alive, let alone human, let alone like, like able to, you know, in an age where we can talk and we read and there's books and there's now, it's like, this is incredible to be here. Like the fact that my hands even work amazes me to this day. I don't understand it. It's just, it's just wonderful. And so you go like, well, you've won the cosmic lottery. So what do you do? What do you do with this life? And for me, being a humanist goes like, you know, I want to make the most of it. Like I want to, I want to make the most of it. And then I do some database research. I do some observation. I do some experimentation. I go like, you know, the people that seem to make the most of this life are the ones that have a handful of loving relationships, that do work that somehow makes things better for other people, and that cultivate a sense of wonder and gratitude for the privilege of being conscious in the first place. And I go like, so, f- you know, when, so for me, like, I go like, those are the things I value. I'm like, if that's what makes for the most, the best life, I want to pursue those things. And then you just like look around and you go like, you know what? Whatever your value system is, you stand a much better chance of living it out if you surround yourself with other people that share the same values and that are committed to the same ideals. So it's like a humanist is somebody who's like, you know what? I really want to proactively pursue loving relationships and I really want to proactively pursue making the world better for other people and I really want to proactively pursue thinking about life and learning about life so that I can be more grateful for life and more excited about life and I want to hang around with other people that want to do that and we'll all call ourselves humanists. And so like that, that, I mean, basically that's, you know, everything I've been doing for the last 10 years is about getting people together around those basic values and saying like, if you value those things, I don't, it's not so much about what you believe. It's about like, are the, is this what you want to do with your life? Then you, then you belong with us because that's what we're going to try to do with our lives. And we're going to try to love each other and help each other grow in that endeavor because we think it's really a, a really cool way to go. And like, you know, we're not saying it's for everybody. Like, you know, like maybe you're thriving in your church or maybe you're thriving by like, you know, trying to earn a lot of money through Bitcoin. Like if like if that's working for you and making you feel like that's the way to maximize your life, we're just saying like within the bell curve, there are a lot of people who their best strategy for thriving would be to, lo- to build some loving relations. And I've got lots of data to support that notion i'm just saying like this is you know this is a really good way of life if yours isn't working out so well so like you know when i was at usc i didn't go looking for the happy christians and and like try to undermine their faith in god i just went looking for all the secular people who were wasting their lives pursuing material wealth in a way that wasn't actually making them happy so you know what you might if you're miserable and depressed and sad you might want to try this other thing it's working really well for us 
You know, that's how I became a humanist evangelist. But again, like back when I was a Christian evangelist, we didn't go after the people that were like loving life in in that other because you they weren't they weren't gettable. It was the people that were like, you know what? I've, I've tried a few paths and they're not really working out for me. You go like, all right, well then we've got this other path. And you know the great thing about doing humanist evangelism was like when I was at USC, kids would go like, God, oh, your your group, you guys seem really nice and. Like, you know, like we like the stuff you're talking about, but like, what do we got to believe to get in? And you're like, you don't have to believe anything that you don't have evidence for. <laughs> you, you really don't. Like, this isn't about what you believe. This is about what you want to do with your life. And uh, that was, the, you know, when I was a Christian evangelist, it was easy to get people excited about the group and how nice we were and about all the good things we were going to do with our lives. But then we go like, so what do you got to believe to get in? And we go, well, you have to believe quite a bit of really bizarre stuff. <laughs> you know, that, that, was, that was always the hard part. So I love, you know, being a humanist is beautiful because I'm still trying to invite people into a loving community that has a sense of purpose to it. But there's no crazy belief system that they got to wrap their head around to get in. Yeah, I still feel really sorry for the really, really early Christians who, uh, when they kind of, when the, when these Gentiles began to realize that they were becoming Christians, and you know, people like Peter were uh, were telling them they still had to become circumcised. It must have been really gutting to later on for them to go. Actually, I'm really sorry, but we're completely wrong about that. You didn't need to get circumcised. Like these new people don't have to be. Like, are you kidding me? Like, what the heck? I need to do this weird task that only a very small percentage of us needed to do. What the heck? <laughs> And, and sometimes I feel like intellectually that was the experience that you, that you or I might have had. Mm. Where when I finally realized that like, wait, you can pursue loving kindness as a way of life without having to believe in flying Jesus. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, what a deal. What a deal this is. And like you could read all these books and ask the question, how is this going to help me be a more loving person? Because there's a lot of books to read that can really give you insight about how to be a better listener, how to build better rituals with people, how to, you know, how to help people with specific kinds of problems, you know, how to overcome, you know, economic struggles in certain, like there's a lot to learn about just how to make the most of life. And I was like, whoa, you mean, you don't, and you don't, no flying Jesus, no, 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 like crazy, like, you're like, well, are there, are there rules? Yeah, yeah, there are definitely rules. You know, like they're, they're like rules of nature. Like, you know, if, if you say to me, can I drink all night and, 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 and still be a, you know, like, is it wrong to drink all night? And like, it's not wrong to drink all night unless, I don't know, unless you think it's really important to be present for your kid the next day. Like, then, it, you know, like, and it's not it's not a law i've i've invented for you it's just like a law of nature like if you drink all night you probably will not be very present the next day it's just, you know just just mm. uh, it's just it's just uh, what do you call it it's just consequences yeah yeah so anyway all of that to say like yeah the circumcision thing i mean and you know as as one who was late in the game like i got like i was circumcised as a kid um but my, but my, and and you know and I I I have some friends who got circumcised like as teenagers and it was incredibly painful. Um. 
and and you know i i mean what's painful to me is to know that 20% of the nerve endings in that part of my body were taken away from me cuz like the 80% that i have i i really appreciate and i would like to have 20% more um so yeah like there is this you know i think any of us that con- convert out of a, a fundamentalist or any kind of like kind of really hardcore supernatural lifestyle have this sense of like oh my gosh all the all the things i didn't do all all the, all the fun i could have had all all, all, the, all the opportunities that i walked away from you know i i you know i, I mean my sense of loss for the first 45 years of my life is is pretty palpable but then you know you end up using a lot of the stuff that you learned in church and you go like well you know it, it's not all lost it's not all lost there's this stuff, you know. There's there's stuff that the stuff that I figured out. It's it's why I'm not so hard on Christianity. It's like I that's where I learned how to be a good friend. Like I learned it in church at sermons and like not not accidentally. They were teaching that, you know. And and you go like, but the, the narrative they were teaching on was wrong. I go like, I know, I know. Like, but but I'm still grateful to them for teaching me that. You know, you go like, well, you could have learned it somewhere else. I go like, I know, but I learned it there, you know? It's like, it's like if I walk into a store and that's the first store where I ever have chocolate ice cream, I'm always going to remember that store fine. Like, that, that's the place where I learned to love chocolate ice cream. You go like, yeah, but there's chocolate ice cream everywhere. You could have gotten it somewhere. I know, but I, that's where I got it. That's why I look at that store. That's where I drank my first milkshake, you know? And so for me, that's Christianity where I go like, yeah. I think it's I, I think it's all erroneous and messed up, but like I'm grateful. I learned a lot. Not everybody can say that. A lot of people are like, that's where they that's where they beat the shit out of me, or that's where the, that's where they taught me st- to hate myself. And when those people's bitterness towards the church, I totally get. You know, it's just it just wasn't my experience. Yeah, I'm, Sam, I, think... I, I I feel like I'm just I'm just babbling. I'm I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm no, this is great podcast guest right now. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. I invited you on for you to speak, so this is this is one hundred percent fine. Um, I have a few tougher questions on humanism, which we might get to, we might not. But something that isn't particularly hard, but I think would be interesting to talk about is um, the sort of central element to an individual's um, humanistic outworkings or directional goals or whatever language you want to use. So, if 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 you're living within this sort of um, humanistic lifestyle, is is it that it's either you at the center or others at the center or is it an and or so i think a lot of people might hear somebody talk about humanism and it's kind of sounds like it's the individual living out for the community because that's what you're going to get the most from um but is is it is it that or is it that is it either or or an and or like how do you how do you mix up the individual and the community i think it's i think it's a both and in the sense that you know you say you know robert ingersoll the the who, who you know this kind of like old school. He was known as the great agnostic. He was the world's most popular orator in the 1890s. And he was a big popularizer of Darwin, debunker of Christianity. And yet the Christians loved to hear him because he was just so sweet and nice. Um, And he was a feminist and an animal rights guy and an environmentalist long before anybody had names for any of those things. An an abolitionist. I mean, just, you know, you you say like, it's almost like he's your hero. I'm like, oh, he's totally my hero. Um, but Ingersoll, one of his great lines was he said, you know, all if there's anything that we've learned from time and experience and knowledge and research, 
It's that the time to be happy is that happiness is the only human good. And he didn't mean happiness in a lightweight way. He meant sort of human thriving. He's like, happiness is the only good. And the time to be happy is now. And the place to be happy is here. And the way to be happy is by making others happy. And that it's a very nice little summation of this idea that like if you evolution has shaped us in such a way that we care about each other. That's kind of our evolutionary strategy. A baby gets born and its brain isn't developed and it can't control it can't take care of itself. But like it it there's there's this thing that happens when you look at it that it's cute and you love it and you endorphins get released and and, and its parents will watch out for it for twenty years. And until it can develop. And that's why your brain can get big enough that you can do all these other kind of really cool stuff. So like we we survive as a, as a, in tribes. We survive. We're, we're we're a social animal. And when you're a social animal, like in the same way that like sex is pleasurable, you know, because evolutionarily speaking, if sex wasn't pleasurable, that whatever species hates sex doesn't go very far forward. Whatever whatever species hates food doesn't go very far forward. Like we learn to love and desire the things that are important for our DNA to keep moving. Because the, 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 you know, if there's any sort of original principle of the universe, it's that once life, it, once life springs into being, it wants to keep going. Life wants to live. Life wants to move forward. And so the, for a social animal, we learned that like endorphins drop in you when you help someone else in your tribe do well like like we the, the idea of vicariously enjoying somebody else's pleasure like that that's a real thing um and so we ultimately it's not a very radical teaching to say to somebody that your happiness and well-being is wrapped up in participating in the happiness and the well-being of the rest of your tribe so you say like oh you you want me to be unselfishly give to the others and I go like no 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 this is enlightened self-interest like I want you to be happy that's why I want you to, to help your brother and you go like well you only care about my brother no 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 like I, I'm saying it for you if, if your brother had everything he needed we would be in real trouble I'd have to find somebody else for you to help like you gotta help somebody like, like your, your sense of meaning like you're not gonna feel safe in this tribe unless you feel like you're needed it's very important to feel like you contribute something. Like evolutionarily speaking, if you did, if you couldn't contribute, they'd leave you behind. You your 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 brain may say otherwise, but your body is telling you you need to be needed. So, buddy, let's go. Let's find your. Let's find the way. Um, and so, no, I I don't think I think it's a both and. You go like, well, what is it? Am I supposed to care about other people, or am I supposed to care about myself? And I go like, yes, absolutely. You should yeah, you should do that. And, 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 and the foolishness is in a culture, in, in a materialistic culture, or, or in, in a kind of a consumeristic, capitalistic su- structure, a lot of times what happens is, is that people actually think that they're going to be happy by meeting their own needs and then, and then meeting their own wants. And then they are shocked. I mean, we're all shocked when like successful, talented, beautiful people are unhappy 
you know, all the kids I studied with at USC, all the kids that were in my, you know, secular fellowship or the kids I met on campus, they were, they were gorgeous kids. They were incredibly academically gifted. They came from very wealthy families. They, they were, these, these were the most privileged human beings on the planet. And they would most often come into my office not to talk about the existential meaning of life. They would talk about like how they didn't have any friends. And the reason they didn't have any friends is because their, fa- their parents had no friends and had not taught them how to have friends because everybody was so busy getting rich. And they were unhappy kids. And 25% of the kids at USC were in, were, were, were in some kind of mental health care. They were depressed and they were anxious and they were lonely and they were sad and they were gorgeous and they were handsome and they were successful and they were going to make millions. You do the math. Like that's, you know, they had bought into an economically, you know, like if you want to build the GDP, sell that lie. But if if you want to create a happy society, you'd better teach people the truth about their evolutionary wiring. And that is that at the top of the Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of need is not a Lexus. You know, and, and do I sound like a preacher? Because I'm, 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 you know, because like, I'm still a preacher. Like, 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 this is actually good news. You know, this is actually good news. And you go like, well, there's a prophetic side to it too, where you're critiquing the culture. And you go, like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Any good humanist would critique the culture. And go like, listen, the values that you're purporting in this culture are not the values that align with human thriving, with well-being. Now your values are screwed up. And the good news is, is that it is possible to band together with other people and live according to a different value system. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you stop working on the contrary. And it doesn't mean that you stop studying on the contrary. And it doesn't mean that you don't try to run a, a good business or get your shipping stuff. It's just like, you got to understand why you're doing it. And maximizing profits is a really lousy way of measuring the value of your business. You, you might want to look at like whether the stuff that you produce actually helps anybody live a better life or whether the jobs that you create add dignity to the lives of their coworkers or whether the, 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 the environment in which people are working gives them an opportunity to exercise their, you know, their talents and gifts in a way that makes them feel good about themselves. Like there are a lot of ways to measure the impact of a business and like making a profit is necessary or else you don't get to do any of the stuff that really matters for very long. But my gosh, if you, if, 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 if you keep, if you keep measuring things, yeah, the other thing is if you keep measuring things that way, you'll always want to do growth. And if there's anything that we're learning on this planet, it's that you can't base your economy on infinite exponential growth. Like at some point you have to figure out what's sustainable. And so, yeah, so like, no, I, I, I think that, I think the humanism, at least the humanism, like, and again, like it means different things to different people. But to me, like, you know, marrying my own well-being to the well-being of other people is, is just, it's, it's scientifically, you know, sensible, but it's also experientially, you go like, you know, just get get out the old Harvard study or any study of long-term human well-being and ask like, who is it that lives the longest and feels the best about their lives at the end of it? Is it the richest? Is it the smartest? Is it the people that have bedded the most women or climbed the most mountains? No, it's the people that have a handful of close loving relationships and that feel good about the work that they did 
and that cultivated some, some, some practices whereby they stopped every now and then and celebrated and stopped every now and then and counted their blessings and stopped every now and then and cultivated gratitude for the privilege of being human in the first place. And you're like, oh, that shit works. We should try that. So I guess one of the things that we're seeing then is we're seeing a lot of people um, kind of drifting towards nihilism, drifting towards fatalism. You've you've already mentioned kind of people coming to you and actually it seems to be a more um, uh, nurture environment where they weren't taught to have friends. They weren't taught to be gracious, uh, uh, full of gratitude for the, for the life they have, for the you know, situations that they're in, to, to look and reflect and realize that they're really privileged to be able to even go to university or all these sorts of things. So I guess kind of what, what would your advice be to those people that, that find themselves uh, facing things like nihilism like, and, or fatalism or just feeling like there's no point to them trying because they can't get anywhere, they might not have been taught how to have friends or taught how to be gracious and or sorry to be full of gratitude for the life they have like how do you begin to help those individuals begin to piece back things that they weren't taught when they were really young and then now they're teenagers or adults or later in life like it's it's hard to begin to graft that into their life so how do you begin to help somebody push that forwards well i mean i guess it depends on how how deep the person is and, and into into the negative and, and how depressed they are or how, how broken they are. Um, but I tell you, the first thing that I, I, I would I would do is I wouldn't start out by, well, you've just got to do this or you've just got to do that. Because the truth of the matter is, is that most of the things that are most important to living a meaningful life, a person can't just teach themselves. We, we learn it from other people. Like we learn how to have friendships we learn how to resolve conflict and we learn how to communicate. Um, we, we learn how to amuse, amuse ourselves when we're bored. Um, we learn how to appreciate nature. We, we, we learn these things. And so if somebody like shows up at 30 or 40 and they don't know how to enjoy life, you don't go like, well, what? you know, what's wrong with you? And be better off asking like what happened and usually there's a story and so one of the things i would say to that person is that it's very hard to teach oneself brain surgery um but it's not hard to find people that can teach you something about brain surgery um and so you know one of the things i encourage people to do is to try to figure out like who in their world or who's available that might know something about life that they don't know in, in in the uk in the uk there's a there's a writer who i like very much a guy named elaine dubouton and uh he, has, he he's part of a project they call the school of life which i just think is a, a terrific name for a community um and he, and I think it's based on a basic principle, and that is a lot of people beat themselves up for not knowing. They're like, come on, everybody knows how to make a friend. He's like, no, they don't. You know, like, you, you remember that class in school where they taught you how to, how to forgive? 
Do you remember that class in school where they taught you how to how to talk to somebody and how to how to ask questions and then follow up questions that so that the person would really feel that you were li- no they didn't teach that they taught algebra they taught English they taught social studies but they didn't teach you that stuff they didn't teach you how to how to for, how to, how to resolve a conflict or how to forgive somebody who had harmed you or how to how to how to construct a proper apology and those are all really important things and you know I. In my therapy practice, a lot of times I end up teaching people really basic stuff about life. And they go like, whoa, this is amazing. I had no idea what would happen if when somebody really is hurting me, if I went to them and using I statements that weren't about putting them on the defensive or blaming them, told them how I felt. Like, whoa. He's like, yeah. So like the first thing is, is I would say, stop beating yourself up because you're not enjoying your life. And going like, you know, like, like you're not to blame. You're not to blame. Uh, having said that, it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility. But the thing to understand is that good relationships are not the birthright of good people. Like, like it's not like you have you have shitty relationships. It's because you're a shitty person. Like the one thing in, that that I know about good people that have good relationships. All the people I know who have good relationships are that they really value having good relationships. They work at it. They read books about it. They practice. They try stuff. And some of them learned it from their parents and they're lucky. And some of them are more naturally talented than others. And some of them are really good looking and that covers a lot of, you know, a lot of problems. But the fact of the matter, you know, it makes it a little easier for people to give you a second chance. But the fact of the matter is, is that learning to enjoy life is, and learning how to connect with other people is, is a craft. There are books about it. There are people that can give you lessons. Like there are opportunities to practice and like you can get better at it if you want to. And so the first thing is it's not your fault that you're in the state. And the second thing is I say is like, yeah, connecting is really important. And yes, you can learn how to do it. Um, and, and, and that's a really, those are three really important messages to give you. It's not your fault. It's not rocket science. And it's going to take some work. And so, you know, you know, and, and you go like, you know, same with archery, by the way. Like, it's not your fault. You don't know how to shoot a bow and arrow very well. Um, it's not rocket science. You could get better at it. And it would take a lot of work and practice. You have to take some lessons. And you're like, and if your life depended on you being an archer, I would suggest that you do that. But it doesn't. But your life does depend on whether or not you can figure out a way to connect and, 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 and find work that's meaningful to you and contribute in some way to the lives of other people so that you feel like you belong. Yeah, that's just really important. You should, that's probably worth the effort. And so that, that you know, the main thing I want to say to somebody is like, it's like some people go like life is meaningless. And the truth is life as a whole, like existence, the universe, I don't think there is any meaning to the universe. I really don't. But there is manifestly a lot of meaning in the universe. And we create it by caring about each other. We create it through our connections. We are meaning-making machines. That's, it's how we survive, by creating meaning. That's when that baby is born, we create a bond. Our brains do that. We create a connection. And, and that baby is meaningful to us. And that meaning emerges out of, out of us. Until that baby was born, it didn't mean anything to anybody. And then it's born and then it does. We create that meaning. And so what I would say is like, look, 
you know, there is no meaning to life. So the nihilist is right. There's no meaning to the universe. Like the, the, like a, a hundred thousand years from now, nobody will remember that either you or I existed. Like not like we will be wiped clean. The, the universe will not long note nor remember us. But I'll tell you what, you mean something to me right now. You're the guy I'm talking to. And like, I'm going to go downstairs and t I'm going to talk to this lady and she's going to mean something to me and my granddaughter's going to come over and she means something to me. Meaning is something that only exists in the moment between us. Like, you can only matter to the people that are, that are there in front of you. And like that, that is manifestly possible. And so if you don't know how to make meaning that way, I'm like, the good news, the, the bad news is, I'm really sorry. You got, you got cheated. The good news is, it ain't rocket science. And I could, you know, and you go like, well, you've never taught somebody how to, how to enjoy their life. And I go like, yeah, lots of times. I did it when I was a Christian and, I, and I've done it since then too. It always works the same way. You know, and you go like, is it easier to do in a group? Yeah, it's easier to do in a group. You go like, are there people that are good at teaching you? Yeah. Are there people that are idiots and you should stay away from? Absolutely. But like what I'm telling you is like don't dress this up and make it seem like it's like a quality that some people have and other people don't have. It's a craft that anyone can learn if once they realize it's 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 really important to know. And so that that that's what I say to Nihilus. And they go like they go like there's no meaning that life is meaningless like when I die no one will remember me and nothing none of this stuff has matters and nothing lasts forever and I thought I was going to go to heaven and live in eternity but there is no such thing and I go like you're right there's there's no meaning to any of this but there's there can be there can be a lot of meaning within it if 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 if, if you want to go that way and I would strongly recommend that you do because it's it's just it's a lot more fun. It's, it's, it's a lot more enjoyable. Um, and it is, it's also, it seems to me to be a much more appropriate response to being given an unbelievably rare opportunity to be a sentient human being. Mm. It's beautifully said, Bart. Beautifully said. I'm aware you've got another appointment, so I'm going to let you go. But just before you do, could you let my listener know where they can find your work, reach out to you and uh, yeah, engage with you? Yeah, I'm totally easy to find. Like if you Google Bart Campolo, the first thing that will come up is like my little website, which is, it's a really crappy website. I need, I need help. Um, but uh, what it does do is it tells you how to find the podcast. And my podcast is called Humanize Me. And I don't ramble on like this. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a much better host than I am a guest, I think. Um, but what I do is I, I get a bunch of people from all different walks of life and I ask them questions aimed at, aimed at, them telling me what they're learning in their lives that I can use to build better relationships or to more or appreciate life on a, in a deeper way. And so it's very helpful to me to make the show, but it's also a lot of people really like it for that reason. Cause it's like, it's not about like, this is why we don't believe in God. And here's another reason why we don't believe in God. And here's a third reason why we hate Christianity. It's all about like, okay, so we're done with Christianity. What do we do now? Um, and so that, that the show has humanized me and, uh, there's a cool documentary. If, like, this is weird. My friend John Wright made this documentary about me and my dad, who's a hyper-evangelical preacher, and about us working out our relationship after I left the faith. And the only reason I recommend it, I mean, it's, it's a long time ago that it was made, like five, six years ago. But the only reason I recommend it is for some of your listeners who probably struggle to be in good relationship with Christian friends and family members, 
um, I think I think there's something there. It really it really captures something about what you can and can't talk about and, and why why it works um, better when you when you, when you when you get curious about the other person's position rather than trying to prove it wrong. Um, yeah, and then the other thing is like sometimes people that are struggling with their deconversions reach out to me and they're like, could could I talk to you? Like, and I go like, yeah, you can. Like, it's it's sort of like it's it's like quasi coaching. We're like sometimes I meet with people once a week or once every month or something, and we just talk through their lives and stuff like that. And you know, again, like this is a great podcast because somebody's like, I hate the way that guy talks. Then please don't call. You'll I'll just there'll just be more of this bullshit. <laughs> um, but 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 sometimes people are like, I'm really trying to figure out how to how to get on with my life, and I get really excited about that. I get really excited about that because the truth of the matter is is that. Um, yeah, the the time to be happy is now, and the place to be happy is here. And the way to be happy is by figuring out how you fit into the broader scheme of things. I hope you enjoyed this episode of When Belief Dies. As always, to leave any comments or thoughts, head on over to YouTube. To follow me on Twitter or to see where else I'm online check out the links in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this show a reality. And until next time, enjoy the journey.